Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 35. And the multitude came together again, so that they could not so much eat as, as eat bread. And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said, He is beside himself. And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, the prince, and by the prince of the devils does he cast out devils. And he called them unto him and said unto them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand but has an end. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and whatsoever blasphemies they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Spirit hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. Because they said, He hath an unclean spirit. There came then his brothers and his mother, and standing without, sent unto him, <clears throat> calling him. And the multitude sat about him, and said unto him, Behold, your mother and your brothers without seek for you. And he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked round about on them which sat around him, and said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and my mother. Amen. And that is the word of God. Words are incredibly powerful. With words, we build friendships. With words, we destroy marriages. And at times, some words even alter the course of human history. Think about these words. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Or, I have a dream. Or even, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Sometimes words reshape national direction. On the 16th of June, 1858, a tall, relatively unknown man stood up at what was then the Illinois State Capitol at Springfield to accept the Illinois Republican Party's nomination to be the state senator. That tall man was Abraham Lincoln. And the speech he gave that day, though he didn't know it then, literally went on to change the world. The nomination of Lincoln was the final item of business at the convention, which broke for dinner, meeting again at 8 p.m. The evening session was mainly devoted to speeches, but the only speaker that night happened to be Lincoln, whose address closed the convention. And, w and that night, Lincoln went on to change the history 
of the world, in fact, with the following words. He said, A house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half-slave and half-free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall, but I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or the other. Gasps were literally heard as Lincoln gave that speech. Lincoln himself didn't know how prophetic those words would later be. Three short years later, the nation would be in a civil war, and as Lincoln himself said, it did emerge, not divided and not fallen, but all free. Immediately after his speech was delivered, it was published in all the newspapers as a pamphlet and published in the proceedings of the convention. In what went on to become known as the House Divided Speech, the title derived from the very passage of Scripture, which will be my text this morning. Found in the Gospel of Mark in the third chapter in the 24th verse, 2,000 years later, these words by Christ still ring true. A house divided cannot stand. No marriage divided itself can stand. No family divided against itself can stand. No unit divided against itself can stand. And no nation divided against itself can stand. If there ever was a time in America for these words by Christ... To be heard and known, it is now. For America to be strong, America must remain united, one nation under God, indivisible. And so I urge you, whatever you can do to promote unity within your own spheres of influence, go out and do it. For blessed are the peacemakers. As the scriptures say, he who causes trouble in his own home, inherits the wind. Be a peacemaker within your home, and then going out. Now, in expositing this morning's text, the proper context for the teaching is centered as Jesus is rebuking the jealous religious leaders of his day. These 15 verses I broke up into the following three segments. First, As a result of Jesus doing the works of his heavenly Father, he attracts a massive crowd. Verse 20. The King James says, a multitude. And by attracting such a large crowd, he also becomes a target of the jealous religious leaders. Verse 22 who begin to spread the lie that Jesus is demon-possessed and he's only able to cast out demons because through Beelzebub, the lead demon, he is empowered to do so. The second phase of this text is Jesus correcting their ignorance by famously teaching that a divided kingdom, even Satan's kingdom, cannot remain standing for long. And then goes on to teach that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the unforgivable sin. Verse 29. Finally, phase 3. 
In verses 31 to 35, the section closes out with a teaching against the worshipful veneration of the Virgin Mary and a reinforcement of the correct belief that all Christians, including Jesus' own blood relatives, were sinners in need of a Savior. In verse 33, Jesus was not cold-shouldering his mother. Instead, he was declaring a powerful truth that even Mary, the mother of Jesus, needed faith in Jesus in order to be saved. A fact that she herself acknowledges in Luke's gospel, in the very first chapter when she cried out, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Yes, Mary needed faith in Christ for her salvation, just like you and I. And unlike what Roman Catholicism teaches, Mary was not immaculately conceived. She was a fallen human, just like the rest of us, who needed a Savior, just like the rest of us. Verse 31 also goes on to reveal that she had other children after the birth of Jesus. Jesus had brothers and sisters. And the closing verses here teach us that all true believers are part of the family of God. And and, and these three segments or phases, as I just called it, 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 that's how I would break down this morning's passage, with the overall main teaching being, do not blaspheme the Holy Spirit, but rather believe in Jesus and do the will of God. That's the takeaway. Do not blaspheme the Holy Spirit, but rather believe in Jesus and do the will of God. And I get that final part about doing the will of God from verse 35 where Jesus patently tells us that it's not about the bumper sticker on the card that displays whether or not your faith is authentic, but rather it's your obedience to the word of God that does. In other words, don't claim to be a child of God. Live it by obeying the word of God. And if you recall, I preached uh, the Sunday before last, Pentecost Sunday, that the Holy Spirit is not some positive energy, but rather that the Holy Spirit himself is God. This is vastly different teaching than any other non-Trinitarian religion. It is the doctrine of the historic church. That Christians believe in the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The doctrine that we serve one God who eternally exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit. We do not serve three gods or three different manifestations, but one God who eternally exists as three persons. Again, three persons, one God. And although revisionist historians try to claim that many of our founding fathers were deists, they were not. One who certainly was, was Thomas Jefferson. And what hung him up was this doctrine of the Trinity. He could not grasp his mind around it. So he did settle for deism. But the historic Christian faith and the faith of many of our founding fathers was in the Trinitarian formula, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And Jesus will again, in verse 29, teach us about the Holy Spirit. So we do well to listen. 
A number of years ago, I had the <clears throat> unfortunate displeasure of running into a YouTube video in which a man picked up a Bible and he intentionally read verses 28 to 29 out loud. He then began, he then proceeded to claim that the Bible was a big hoax and in order to prove it on video in YouTube, he began to blaspheme and curse out the Holy Spirit. I felt terribly sorry for him for two reasons. First, because no one curses God like that and gets away with it. I believe that in faith. And second, because that man, like so many others, totally did not understand Jesus' teaching in that text. In fact, I know some Christians who are still paralyzed till this day in fear because they think that while they were younger, they committed this unpardonable sin of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. So what exactly is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Well, some read verse 30 and claim that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit occurs when a person attributes a work of God to a work of the devil. And while there is some legitimacy to that sort of thinking, three things work against it. Number one, the rest of today's passage. Number two, all of New Testament theology. And number three, the Apostle Paul's life. You see, the Apostle Paul infamously spent a good portion of his life attributing the works of the Holy Spirit to the nefarious. So much so, he hunted Christians and tried to have them killed. Yet by appearing to Saul on the road to Damascus and by saving him, God taught us that even the chief of sinners can be saved. Amen? So the unforgivable sin is not wrongly attributing the works of God to Satan, or else the Apostle Paul would be in, in hell himself. But rather, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, listen carefully, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the decisive rejection of the gospel. The Apostle Paul himself said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe the Jew first, and also for the Gentile. I want you to listen closely here. The only thing that could damn you to an eternity in hell is unforgiven sin. The only thing that can damn you to an eternity in hell is unforgiven sin. But the moment you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, all your sins are forgiven. There is no purgatory, friends. Jesus paid it all, all your sins are forgiven, and you gain eternal life. Now what is this gospel? You could explain it in various different ways. I like to break it down into four simple points. Number one, there is a God who is just holy and love. Number two, we are all sinners. The Bible says in our mother's wombs we were conceived in sin. We are sinners by birth, and theologians call this original sin. I said it a few weeks ago, I said this, we are not sinners because we sin, but rather we sin because we're sinners. That simply means when we sin, we are naturally doing what we were born to do. And that's bad news because that means that all of us, we need a Savior. 
It puts us in a state of guilt before a holy, righteous God who, although he loves, must judge sinners to an eternal hell. Now, why eternity in hell for temporary sins? Seems unfair. One theologian put it this way. Eternal eternal damnation is warranted because sins against an infinitely holy God deserve infinite punishment in hell. And so with our human minds, we don't equate that, perhaps, to equality, but in the eyes of a just God, it makes perfect sense. So again, bad news, which means all sinners deserve eternal punishment in hell. But the good news, the great news, is that God so loved the world, He sent His only Son, Jesus, fully God, fully man, lived a sinless life, and then He died on the cross to pay for the sins of those who will believe in him. On third day, historically rising from the dead, not a myth, a historical fact, so that point number four, if you personally repent of your sins and believe in Jesus as your Lord God and Savior, you will have eternal life. It is not your good works. It is not your baptism. It is simply your faith alone in Christ alone that saves you from eternal hell. You think about that thief on the cross. I remember baptizing the sergeant first class two weeks ago. Baptism does not save. That thief on the cross was never baptized. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. It is your faith in Jesus that saves. But it has to be personal. Your mother and your father can't save you. They could have been a pastor and deacon or faithful members of their church, they cannot save. It must be a personal faith or else it cannot save. And so if the Holy Spirit is moving in your heart today, believe in the gospel for today is the day of salvation. And you heard the gospel today. Please do not reject him. Believe and be saved. You could have been in the church all your life. But just being in a church doesn't make you any more of a Christian than being in a parking lot makes you a car. Right? Your personal faith, God sees the heart. Are you a believer? That's what saves. Now, as I close this morning, I I, want to go back to House Divided, the title of Lincoln's famous speech and Jesus' original words. I wish to close by speaking on the power of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit, and a nation that's united. And I'm going to do this with with a, a news article. We all lived through it. Most of us lived through it. Because it shocked the nation. And I think it powerfully illustrates the power of the Holy Spirit a united house, and the only thing that can keep this house united. On June 17, 2015, a 21-year-old by the name of Dylan Roof walked into an all-African-American church in South Carolina. That night, they were having a small Bible study. And he came in and he sat in through the entire Bible study. When the study wrapped up, The church members closed their eyes to pray, and that's when he opened fire and he killed nine parishioners in the middle of a Bible study in God's house. 
After his capture, video conducted by the FBI showed Roof laughing and admitting, I am guilty. And Felicia Sanders was an eyewitness at the shooting. She was there. When Roof was shooting, she asked him while he was shooting, why are you doing this? You know what his response was? This was his response. His response was, I have to do this because you blacks are raping our women and taking over the world. And then she said, that's when he put about five bullets into my son and killed him. Now on June 19th, less than 48 hours after the shooting, some of the victim's family spoke at Ruth's first court appearance. And one by one, they did something remarkable. Anthony Thompson, for example, the husband of victim Myra Thompson, said something that shocked news outlets and eventually the entire nation. He said to Ruth, listen to these words. He said, I forgive you, but we would like you to take this opportunity to repent. Repent, confess, give your life to the one who matters most, Christ. So that he can change it can change your ways no matter what happened to you, and you'll be okay. Do that, and you'll be better off than what you are right now, end quote. Wow. That's a better sermon than what I just preached. Amen. Now, ladies and gentlemen, what gave Anthony Thompson the supernatural power to say that to his wife's killer? I would say it was the Holy Spirit. Jesus once said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. And I would say that there is no other religion in the world that gives man the power to say the words that Mr. Thompson said that day. Mr. Thompson believed in those words of Christ and he lived it. And he lived it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And in this broken world, where you will have those who will blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you will also have those rare, glorious moments where men and women, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, say and do the supernatural. And one day in heaven... Jesus will turn to these individuals and he will say, welcome home, my brother, my sister, and my mother. Amen. Let us pray. Father, I just thank you today.